How about we get started with the Bible today? Does anybody like the Bible? Let's look at Luke. If you, if you uh, want to turn to the passage, turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. And we even provide, if you didn't bring a Bible, if you brought a Bible, you're really cool in my book. But if you didn't bring a Bible, we even put Bibles on the tables so that you can have them. And yes, I said have. If you want to bring it home, it's yours. It's not stealing. We want you to have Bibles around here because Bibles are cool. Luke 15, um, chapter, chapter 15, verse 1. This morning is our last talk on the parables. This is the last Sunday of June, the month of July. We're going to talk about church history, the final church history. Uh, it'll be the modern church history, what's today going on in church. So that'll be fun. That's next month. But today, parables, ladies and gentlemen. So I have two here. I'm going to read these two. And the parable, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then after that is the parable of the prodigal son, my favorite parable of all times that we'll talk about today. So let's read this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go out after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing uh, in the present there is rejoicing in the presence of angels, of uh, angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pretty cool parables, don't you think? God cares about the, those that are lost, even if it's just one. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the Mill Sunday School. We thank you that you are here, God. We invite you on a deeper level into our hearts, into our minds. God, would you open our hearts today? Would you open our minds to learn more about you, to learn about your ways, Jesus? And we thank you, we praise you, and we love you, Jesus. And everyone screamed, Amen! All right, everybody. This is the Mill Sunday School. If you're new-ish to the Mill Sunday School, we're all about learning in here. I've joked, I've said that we are the nerds of the mill. Some of you have come up to me and said, Joe, we don't like the term nerd. And I said, okay. And they say, we like the term geek. So whatever you prefer, nerd, geek, in my book, it's all the same. We are the people of the mill that really like to learn. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I got a cough today, so if I start coughing, you'll know that it's totally normal. Um, we are the people of the mill that like learning about God. We love the scriptures. We love theology. We love church history. We love going deeper than maybe an average sermon. An average sermon goes pretty deep, but we are more teachy, more learny. There's a whiteboard up here. Don't you like the whiteboard? That's the difference between preaching and teaching. If there's a whiteboard, it's officially teaching. That's the difference, ladies and gentlemen. So we are the nerds of the Mill Sunday School. We are a tribe of people that love learning. 
Do you guys like learning? Give yourself a clap because you like learning. <laughs> oh, I know. Isn't it fun to be in here? Yes, it is. We're talking about parables. Shall we do a review? This is your note. If you're new to the Mill Sunday School, in the inside, uh, there's places for you to take notes because, and there's even pens on your table. We like to take care of you guys. We want to do a quick review of uh, parables. I was gone last week. Um, Evan Martin preached in here. Didn't he do a good job? Were you here last week? He did a great job from what I heard. And uh, I was in Los Angeles doing some schooling out there. Some of you know I'm working on my doctorate, so I was out there doing some seminars, learning how to write a 250-page paper on a research project. Sounds like fun, huh? Yes, it does, because you're all nerds, just like me. So that's what I was doing. Me and my wife actually drove out there, and we made a little vacation of it. We camped in Malibu. We uh, saw uh, the Grand Canyon on the way back. On the way back, we saw Las Vegas, and uh, it, was, it was cool. And so, um, parables. I had a really good uh, analogy of God while I was working on my doctorate in a seminar. It's funny how God speaks to us sometimes. You know, a preacher will be preaching about something in particular, but you hear something else, and that's the way God teaches, and that's the way God uh, might teach you something that the preacher wasn't even preaching on. It was just like a sub-point that really touched you that day. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you do. Um, and so the, the, the professor was talking about how God is huge, and we can't know God fully. And he gave this analogy of an ant, how an ant can't really know a human being. Maybe an ant can see parts of a human being, like the shoe, and, and say, oh, that, that shoe rubber is the same substance as this rubber over here. But, I mean, the ant, all they do is get food and they dig holes. They have really no way of understanding a human being, like why we do things, why we come to the Mill Sunday School, emotions, the Bible, just stuff like that. An ant can't comprehend a human being, just like we don't have the capacity to truly comprehend God himself. And I thought, man, that's true. We, there, there's, God is so much bigger than we'll ever even know because God is God and we're human beings. We're his creation. And in the same way, and then I started to think about Jesus, how Jesus is God himself, but he came to this earth to show us who he is. It's almost like the crazy analogy of the human being, a human being becoming an ant so that he could share to the ants what humanity is like. That's a good analogy. It, to, to me, it was. To me, I was just like, wow, that's just so cool that God became a human to show us who he is. And we're studying the parables. The reason why we're studying the parables is because of one-third of Jesus' teaching was in parables. One-third. My Bible has red letters. If your Bible has red letters as well, then one-third of those red letters are in the form of parables. That's a lot of stories. It's, it's said that throughout history, no one used parables like Jesus used parables. No person used parables to the amount that Jesus used parables. I mean, think about it. Two people are talking, Jesus enters, and he just starts telling a story. Hey, what are you going to do later on, Jesus? Well, let me tell you. There was two men. One was in a field. One was at the computer lab. And then they were, he like, tells a story. That's how Jesus would talk. Wouldn't it be cool if we could talk like that? If we just had all these stories lined up to talk to people? I think it would be really sweet if someone talked in parables all the time. One-third of their communication was in parables. And I think Jesus spoke in parables. I talked about this the very first time in Sunday school that we talked about parables, that Jesus wanted us to respond to, to the truths that he was teaching. 
wanted us to respond. And that's the reason he spoke in parables. He spoke in parables because it's easier to respond to a story than it is to respond to facts. Let me give you an example. There's all kinds of facts out there that, that um, well, let me give you an example of a movie. How many of you saw Hotel Rwanda? You remember seeing that powerful film? It was a film about Rwanda, the African country, that in the 1990s went through political turmoil. There was refugees. I think almost a million people were killed in genocide over that incident. You probably all in the 90s saw that happening on the news, and we saw uh, news people talking about that, and it was in the papers, and, and people thought, wow, that's, that's really going on over there. But there really wasn't um, that much, and I, maybe I'm getting this all wrong, but it seems like at least when I was in the 90s, I was in high school, and so it, just, it didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. And then the movie came out just about, what was it, two years ago? The movie Hotel Rwanda came out, and for the first time I saw it, and lots of Americans were involved with a story of what happened in Rwanda. And we're like, wow, this really happened? All these bad things really happened in Rwanda? We need to do something. We need to send. And so there's been a surge of help going to Rwanda. I mean, long after they've actually needed it. That was in the 90s when that happened. But when it became a story, it became a movie, it became something huge, just like the movie Super Size Me. Anybody see Super Size Me? Everybody knows that fast food is bad for you. We didn't need a movie to tell us that. But when the movie came out, the movie supersized me. It's about this guy that goes on a 30-day, all he eats is McDonald's food. And then, and then throughout the movie, he gets sick and sicker, and he's almost like dying at the end of the movie because all he eats is McDonald's, and there's all these stories. As soon as the American people, because we all knew that fast food was bad for us, but when we saw the movie, it became real. Don't you think? You guys, anybody that saw the movie, you're like, wow, I'm never going to eat fast food again. Right? Anybody think that after the movie? I did. I was like, <laughs> like, no, I went out and ate McDonald's right after the movie. <laughs> it be, and nowadays, like, what, what are all the fast food restaurants doing? They're selling, like, club sandwiches and salads and all this food that's supposed to be better for you. Right? Am I crazy? It's because the ideas are not just facts. It became a movie, supersized me, that helps change our, our eating habits. And Jesus, instead of just telling facts about the kingdom of God or how salvation works, he told stories, and that's how our God teaches us, in the form of stories. So we're taking this whole month and talking about the parables of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's jump in to conflict and confrontation. Often Jesus used parables to confront people, to enter into conflicts, to uh, tell people things that were hard to, to say. For those people, it was hard to hear. Often, it was the Pharisees that were the receiving end of this confrontation, this conflict of Jesus' parables. Let me read for you one of the stories, that Je a parable of Jesus that was directed to the Pharisees. This is in Luke chapter 7, and it's uh, verse 36. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read this, uh, about five verses here. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. This is the story of uh, the people that owe some money, and it's the context for that as well. Luke 7, 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So do you see it? There's a Pharisee. He invites Jesus. They're eating dinner. After dinner, Jesus is reclining at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet. She began to wet his feet 
with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were really a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And the story goes on to say that she was a prostitute, a former prostitute. Verse 40 says, Jesus answered, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So you see, Jesus could have entered into a direct confrontation. And oftentimes, in the, in the New Testament, we have Jesus directly confronting people. And it seems like maybe he's, uh, he seems like he gets upset or frustrated with the Pharisees, and he directly confronts them. But here, he tells a parable. He tells a story that, that confronts this man named Simon. And, and it's in a way that's, that's very loving, that's very caring. Instead of just directly slamming this Pharisee, he tells, he tells a, a, a parable. And it, it's interesting to me that the, the Pharisee didn't even say that he was thinking that if this man was a prophet, he would know who was t- touching him. But he just thought it. But Jesus is God, right? So Jesus knew what his thoughts were. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owned money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, and another owed him 50 denarii. And just in case you're wondering how much a denarii is, because, because we're nerds, we like to know those kinds of things, uh, I looked it up, and a denarii is one, it's, it's just about, for the average person, it's one day's wage. So however much you make in a day, one denarii is your day's wage. And then I also looked up and found that the average American makes $180 in one work day. I'd like to get some of that. <laughs> But the average American, that's what it said, the average American makes $180 per work day, which it seems like a lot to me, but, you know, who knows, I'm just a pastor. But my job is fun. I have the funnest job in the world, so I, it's amazing that I even get paid to do it. Um, so 500 denarii would be $90,000 that you owe this money lender. And another person owes him uh, the 50 denarii would be $9,000. You know how much $90,000 is? That's a lot of money. And if you owed that to a money lender, like I imagine they were like uh, one of those places that you go, you stop by and you get your checks cashed, like one of those high interest loan kind of things, maybe just at 15%, if we were to, to, to bring this parable into our culture so that we could understand it, uh, those money lenders are sometimes like 15%. Is that high? Yeah, that's really high. And so don't do that. Don't go to, don't borrow your money from bad places that are high, very high interest rates. The interest rate of 15% on $90,000 per month just to pay the interest is $1,125. Is that a lot of money? Some of you are like, no, it's nothing. Yeah, it is. It's a ton of money. If you had to pay that every month, it could ruin your life financially. And so Jesus is telling this parable, one owes a ton of money and one owes a lot of money. Neither of them, verse, verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. That was Jesus' way of confronting this Pharisee in a very caring way, in a very loving way. Have you ever had to confront someone, tell someone something that's really hard? Maybe in your mind right now you're thinking, I probably should confront this or that person because of this situation or that situation. Just in dealing with life, we, we rub against each other sometimes the wrong way, and we need to confront each other and say, you know, you really hurt me when this happened, or I need to tell you something that you're not going to want to hear, or 
uh, so on and so forth. Hard things need to be said. I once had to say something hard to someone, and I used a parable to do it. <clears throat> Would you like to hear the story? I think it's pretty interesting. It's not that cool of a parable, but it's a cool story, I guess. It's kind of an embarrassing story. Um, I was, at, it was in college, <clears throat> I think my sophomore year, I was reading a book uh, called, I think it was called, yeah, I think it was titled Word Pictures, and it was written by a Christian that, that said we need to communicate in word pictures, in parables, in stories, basically was the idea that these word pictures are powerful forms of communication. If you need to tell someone something, often like poems are often about something else, but it's actually about the love you have for someone else. Like I, I could write a poem for my wife, and it would be like, oh, it would be really cool. But anyways, um, <clears throat> I, okay, I will. I'll do that later on today. <laughs> um, I, I was reading this book called Word Pictures, and it was about how, how word pictures can be very powerful means of communications. And I had to confront someone, I'm not really confront, I had to have a DTR. You know what a DTR is? A DTR is define the relationship. And it, there was this girl back in college, this was like several years ago, that uh, kind of liked me. And I, it was during a period of time when uh, I, had, I had told people that I had just broken up with someone and it was kind of messy and I, I just wanted to take a year off from dating. I didn't want to date for a year. And I kind of told some people that. And, it kind of, you know, as rumors fly, they just, oh, yeah, Joe's not dating. And for some reason, as soon as you tell, tell people that you don't want to date, I don't know if it's like a supply and demand kind of thing, but it seems, I don't know. It's, it's, so this girl started liking me, and, and we were friends, and I could tell that she was, she kind of liked me, you know, various reasons. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, just spending time and just, you know, random things like that. But I just, I didn't really like her very, as, as more than a friend. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. You've all, maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't. And, and so a DTR needed to happen. A define the relationship needed to happen because it seemed like she was really starting to like me and I didn't really have the same feelings back for her. And, and some of that was because we just didn't get along. Maybe she thought we got along, but it was kind of like brother and sister, like fighting each other, making fun of each other. It just wasn't a, you know what I'm talking about? And so <laughs> you're like, yeah, I've been there, done that. But uh, she actually initiated the DTR. She pulled me aside, and she was a very bold, upfront kind of girl. And we were on, the, on this porch. People were inside uh, hanging out. We were on this porch, and she was pretty blunt and said, I, we need to talk. And I said, okay. And I kind of assumed that we were going to talk about that. And she said, uh, I, I, I just like you. <laughs> she was just pretty upfront about liking me and, and wanting to get to know me more. And, and then she asked me, well, what do you think? And it's an awkward situation, don't you think? And so I had been reading the book, Word Parable, word, uh, word Pictures, and so I used a word picture. And you might think it's very silly, and it is kind of a silly word picture. But she really liked cats. She had like three or four cats. She really liked cats. And so I said something like, well, you know, cats just like other cats. They kind of hang out. They play with balls of yarn together. And they just, cats are cats. You know, they just hang out and love each other. Um, but dogs and cats don't get along. Dogs and cats, just for some reason, they just don't like each other. And, and, and for some reason, just you and I, we just don't, we just don't mesh like two cats. We're kind of like a cat and dog. Do you understand? And she said, yeah, I, I guess I understand. And, and we parted our ways. And then the next week, she came up to me and, and told me that I had explained to her very well how I felt about her and the situation. And she wished that all guys were like me and could communicate 
so well. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's amazing that I just, and it's because, it's because of the, of the word picture, this idea of, a, of using a story. It wasn't even a story. It was really quite dumb. But <clears throat> this idea of using something to, to, because I really, I mean, she was throwing her heart out on the line, and we were friends, and I, I did care about her. I just didn't want to pursue a, a relationship with her. And so I had to break it to her very easily. And I did so with, I'm sure you all think it's a very silly parable, but to her, it was very meaningful. And to her, and I said it in a caring way, and she really liked cats. So to her, it was really, really meaningful. And as she even said, that I wished all guys were like you and could communicate so well. And then she said, that was one of the best breakups I've ever had. And I was like, well, we, we weren't really dating, were we? <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. Um, and so Jesus, actually, let me give you, if you want a homework assignment, some of you are like, yes, give us homework. We love homework. Uh, there is a word picture story. It's, it's not one that Jesus tells, but it's one that Nathan, the prophet in the Old Testament, tells to David. He, he confronts David about his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and uses a word picture. And it's an incredible word picture. And you're like, wow, that's how you confront a king. Because, I mean, sometimes when you confront a king, you get your head cut off. But Nathan, the prophet, was very ginger and cared about David, but wanted to confront him. And so if you, if you want a homework assignment, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is about Bathsheba and David, and then chapter 12 is about Nathan confronting David using a word picture. That's your homework, if you wanted homework. Some of you do. And so that, there it is, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. But let's talk about Jesus and his use of word pictures. He often had to confront the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, I think we mentioned this uh, maybe last week, no, second to the last week ago, um, we kind of talked about how the Pharisees in that culture were not the bad guys. Today, we think, if someone says Pharisee, we automatically think good guys are bad guys. We think bad guys, yeah, the Pharisees. Because the only time we've ever heard the term or the word Pharisee is in church, right? I mean, think about it. Do you use the term Pharisee when you're outside hanging out? No, you, you use the, the term Pharisee is a religious term for a type of person that was Jewish around the time of Jesus. And since Jesus had many confrontations with the Pharisees and, and said how you, you shouldn't be like a Pharisee, we consider them, oh, the Pharisees are the bad guys. But in this culture, in the year, uh, whatever, 30 AD, or whatever it was close to around when Jesus was around and talking, the Pharisees were considered the good guys. Let me explain why. Here's some facts about the Pharisees. Uh, Pharisee, parush, means separated. That's where they get the term Pharisee. It means separated for a life of purity, a life of holiness. That sounds like, don't you think? Let me give you some more facts. When um, the Roman Empire came in and conquered Israel, there was a lot of cultural assimilation. That means people that were Jewish um, uh, in their way to get worldly would, would start to, wor in, in a bad way, would start to worship some of the Roman gods, start to do some of the things that were popular amongst the Romans. But the Pharisees were the ones that were separated, called apart. They were the holy ones. They were the ones, <coughs> excuse me, I have a quote here. Pharisees were, in a sense, the blue-collar Jews who adhered to the tenets developed in the Old Testament, such as individual prayer and the assembly and the synagogues. They were the people that prayed. They were the people that went to church. Good guys are bad guys. <clears throat> Seems like good guys to me. Here's some more facts. Uh, in comparison with the Sadducees, have you heard of the Sadducees? Often Jesus would put them in the same category and say, woe to you, Pharisees, Sadducees, 
teachers of the law, you do this and this, but you need to have, you know, he would rebuke, he would put them in the same pot, the same bowl, Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees were the rich people. They were the aristocratic, uh, aristocratic people that were all about the worship in the temples. And so once or twice a year, maybe three times a year, he would bring a sacrifice to the temple, make this big sacrifice, um, <clears throat> spend a lot of money on a bull, sacrifice the bull for your sins. And the Sadducees were all about perfecting that system, making that system count. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were all about making your spiritual life true in every day, bringing uh, how to live out your faith in the daily life. And so in comparison, the Sadducees were the people that, if I could make the bold uh, stereotype, the people, the Christians that maybe just showed up on Christmas and on Easter, but maybe had a lot of wealth and maybe gave some of their wealth to the church, but just thought they were good, doing good enough by giving some money and showing up on Christmas and Easter. You know those type of Christians that just say they believe, but maybe they don't. I don't know. Maybe that's a weak comparison to the Sadducees. Maybe it's a good one. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were the people that wanted to live out their faith on a daily level. They wanted to be righteous and carry out their faith. Sounds like good guys, don't you think? I mean, if I, I, was, if I was to make another bold stereotype, it sounds like the Pharisees might be kind of like the people. Hello, hello. Yes. Technology is so cool, huh? A round of applause for technology. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, John chapter 3. This is one of the most, you know that John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, as well it should be because it's a great verse, um, comes out of this. And it's Jesus' conversation to a dude who is a Pharisee, and his name is Nicodemus. And it says in the first, the first sentence um, that he comes at night. Uh, let's see, number two. Verse 2, no, where is it? Is it in verse 1? 2. Why can't I see it? Oh, it came at night. Yeah, he came to Jesus at night. Sorry, I'm trying to think clearly up here. Uh, Jesus came, excuse me, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night. And maybe the reason why he came at night was to kind of, because he was embarrassed. Maybe he secretively wanted to talk to Jesus about what was true. I don't know, I'm just guessing, throwing, throwing that out there. It says he came to Jesus Jesus tells him basically that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. And Jesus says in verse 7, you should not be surprised that you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. That this Pharisee, even though he's the good guy, he's righteous. He's the one that the people know that he's the one that prays a lot. He's the one that goes to church a lot. And Jesus says, you shouldn't be surprised that you need to be born again. In verse 10, he kind of says that you are Israel's teacher, you're a Pharisee. Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? Kind of, it seems like he's kind of almost just poking at Nicodemus, saying, you're, the one, you're a Pharisee, you're a good guy, you're the one that's known for prayer and coming to church, and you, do not, you don't know these things? You don't know that you need to be born again? Well, it's true, you do. It, you're not just saved by your good works. You're not just saved by righteousness. And their conversation just kind of ends there. And Jesus, of course, gives 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, that's a cool verse. That's why it's so popular. That's why many of you have memorized it. But the conversation just ends. We don't know what really happened to Nicodemus until you turn over to John chapter 19. And this doesn't necessarily say that he became a Christian, but I think it kind of does. John chapter 19, verse 38, talks about the burial of Jesus. This is after Jesus has died, after Jesus has died, and they're burying him. 
Verse 38 says later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Christ, but secretly, uh, for fear of the Jews, with Pilate's permission, he took, uh, took the body away. And accompanied with him was Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And that's all it really says about Nicodemus. But he's still around. He's a part of the story. He was there for Jesus' burial. Isn't that cool? I think it goes to say that, he, yeah, he believed. He was still around. And I looked up myrrh because I had no idea what myrrh and aloes were. You know, sometimes it's cool just to look up stuff because we're nerds, right? We look this stuff up. And so I looked it up and I found out that it's a spice that was used in funerals and burials. And it's five times, at that point, at that time in history, it was five times more expensive than frankincense. And frankincense is very expensive. So I did an internet search and tried to look up a pound of frankincense as if I was going to buy it <clears throat> because that's what I do in my spare time. And, um, and I looked at it and it said that you could, you could get a, a pound of frankincense shipped to you for $78 plus shipping and handling. So one pound of frankincense, 78 bucks. But that's five times, myrrh is five times more expensive. So that's a lot of money. And then he had 75 pounds of that stuff. Thousands of dollars that he spent. And I think that's why uh, in that culture they would have automatically assumed, wow, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That's a, that's a big investment. That's a big amount of money to spend on someone's funeral. And so that's why I think Nicodemus was surely a believer. So he is, <laughs> a round of applause for Nicodemus. Sorry, I had to sip my water or else I'll start coughing like a madman. Um, so he is a Pharisee that gets it right. He is a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, that, that gets it right after talking to Jesus. And so we enter into this parable. Let's turn to Luke. We're going to spend the rest of the time in Luke chapter 15. And this is my favorite parable of all times that Jesus tells. And we save it for last because we, say, we like to save the best for last. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke uh, chapter 14, verse, uh, I think, I believe it starts at verse 11. How many of you really like the pr- parable of the prodigal son? If you had to pick a favorite, it's yours. Yeah, it's so cool. It's an amazing parable. The parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal, so, so, some people are confused that prodigal is a good thing. No, the term prodigal means lost. So, so the term prodigal means wasteful in luxury. And so the term pro, the prodigal son is the, the son that turns away from his father and then comes back in the end. And we'll, we'll read that in a second. And it's, it's really a story. What we read, if you remember how we opened Sunday school this morning, we opened up Sunday school with reading the first two parables in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. And then it says that Jesus continued. And verse 11 says, Jesus continued. And then he tells the parable of the lost son. And so all of these parables, one, two, three, are all two in the context of kind of talking to the Pharisees, in context of kind of confronting the Pharisees. That's why I kind of talked about confrontation and Jesus' use of the parables in confronting the Pharisees. Because the parable of the prodigal son, I mean, there's lots of ways to interpret it, but the parable of the prodigal son is in the context of confronting the Pharisees. And so it's the older brother in this story that in the context, that it's the older brother that is the really the true meaning of the story of the prodigal son. Have you ever thought about that? It's interesting, and I don't mean to tell you that's how you must interpret this parable. Because I had a literature teacher uh, in, in uh, college. I was taking college uh, literature. Some of you know that I was a science major in college, a biology major. So 
I just had to do this English literature course as a, uh, what is it, like your prerequisite, your general education. So I had to do this class, and I really didn't like the class. The, the teacher was very, um, just very poetic and very, like an English literature teacher should be. And I was like a science guy, like, give me the facts. What's going to be on the test? And we would read assignments, and then in literature class, we would sit around and talk about it for an hour and a half. That's brutal to someone like me that likes science and like playing with stuff in the laboratories and blowing stuff up. And so we just talked about, well, what we felt when we read this and how we, um, I don't know, how, like what we thought it meant. And I always wanted the teacher to say, well, what does it really mean? What's going to be on the test? But that wasn't the idea of English literature. English literature is not like science where they just give you the facts of what's going on. English literature is about the heart. and It's about learning through uh, stories and cool literature, right? Anybody a lit major? Hopefully I didn't make fun of you too much. And so in this class, I, and I totally agree with the teacher. Hello? Yes, there it is. If you're listening by podcast, we just had some battery malfunctions. <laughs> can you know what the mill does? The, we have on our website, you could do the podcast of the mill Sunday school. Some of you have gone to, actually quite a few have gone to it and downloaded stuff. That's cool, in case you sleep in. But don't sleep in. Don't just get the podcast. We like you here. So anyways, all right, let's continue. So the, the son says to his father, basically in this parable, I wish you were dead. Can you give me my inheritance now? The inheritance that I'm going to get when you die, can you give that to me now? And so that the father divvies it up and gives it to him. Verse 13 says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. Maybe he went to Vegas. I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe he went to Vegas. Um, that me and my wife, on our way back, last week we were in uh, Los Angeles. We drove back through. We went to Las Vegas, stayed there. Uh, and it was, it, it was Erica's first time going to Vegas. And it's, has, how many of you have been to Vegas? It, it's just not that good of a city. I mean, it's kind of like, duh. It's not that good of a city. The, the, the motto, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But this idea that there's a lot of lost people there. And the casinos are all uh, laid out, so you kind of have to get lost to be in Vegas, to kind of do the tourist thing and just see the, to see the casinos. You have, to, you have to go inside. You can't just walk to the casino. There's like, you can't even walk across the street. There's like these fences across the street. You have to go into the casinos and then use their skyways to cross over, and there's not like big signs everywhere telling you where to go. You have to like go down and get lost, have no idea where you're at. You have to be lost in order to go to the casinos. And it's really an, an analogy of this, the city in a lot of ways. There's just a lot of lost people. When we were there, there was just people walking around with, with either bottles or even glasses, like these big, tall margarita glasses. And they're stumbling. They're walking down the street with a glass of alcohol, and they're already stumbling. And there's just this sense of lostness that these people were coming and, and squandering their money and being prodigal spending things on luxurious money that they probably can't really afford and gambling. There's just a lot of lostness to the city of Las Vegas. And so here's this prodigal, spending his money in wild living. That's what it says. Verse 14 says, After he has spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be a citizen of that country who sent, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach's with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Maybe that's an exaggeration. I mean, obviously, Jesus is just telling this parable. It's not literal, I don't think. Um, the idea that 
you couldn't even eat what the pigs were eating, that you were less than human because of, because of whatever, that you were this prodigal. I mean, think about it. If you were hungry, I mean, you could just go, if you were hungry right now, you'd go over there and get some donuts. We got free food. If you were really hungry, you can go to Sam's Club and get the samples, right? If you were really hungry, you could come up to me and say, Joe, I'm really hungry. I don't have any money. I would go and buy you a sandwich. No big deal. Because, I mean, just think about the idea of food and how, I mean, is there any reason for anybody to really go hungry in here? I don't think so. But yet this person, this young man, didn't, no one, the people didn't even give him what the pigs were eating. He was less than human. And then it goes on to say, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and yet here I am starving. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And that's the, you see that there's a picture on the cover of your millet. That's the, uh, a skillet, excuse me. It's a Sunday school millet, what we call it. It's the picture of Rembrandt, his painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And there, there's the son kneeling down, uh, his father standing above him with a shoulder, hand on, both hands on his shoulder. And then there, there's a character to the far right. His head's kind of cut off by the, the parables of Jesus thing. But he's dressed, if you saw it in color, he's dressed in the same colors as the father. And we think that that's the older brother, just kind of looking on. He doesn't look very happy. But let's continue with the, with the parable. And another, another note that this guy makes is that uh, in the commentary is that men in the Middle East don't run. And the reason is because, I mean, we would call them skirts, that the men are wearing like these long skirt things. I mean, it's a different culture, so they're allowed to do it. But um, so if, if a man was to run, he would kind of have to hike up his skirt, show his bare legs, and run. Very, I mean, just not a thing that uh, a wealthy, aristocratic man in the Middle East would do. And yet, because he's filled with compassion for his son, he just drops everything, lets his, all his guard down, and runs to the son. The son said to the father, this is verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Intro, older son. Meanwhile, this is verse 25, the older son was in a field. He came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he asked one of his servants. He asked him what was going on. Can you th- think about that for a second? He's the, he's the oldest son. He's the one that should have, should have had the inheritance. He's the one that's been with the father. And yet he has to go to a servant and say, what's going on? He's feeling left out of the party. Didn't, did, is there a party going on? People didn't invite me. I'm, am I being left out again? Verse 27, your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because of him, and he's ba- back safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out, pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've spent slaving for you, never dis- disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I guess that's how they celebrated back then. Verse 30, but, th- but when your son who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fat- 
fatted calf for him. He asked his father, Dad, you never even threw me so much of, as a party. And yet, now this son that's, that's went away and squandered all this wealth with prostitutes comes home and you throw him a party? Where's my party? Verse 31 says, My son, the father said, You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. It's a parable to the Pharisees. It's a parable in, in confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the people that uh, we're known as the ones that pray. We're known as the ones that go to church. And they, Jesus tell, I see this parable as Jesus telling them they need to be more like the Father. They, they, they don't need to be like the, the, the prodigal son that goes out and squanders their wealth, but they need to be more like the, the, the Father. The Pharisees were considered to be the leaders, the ones in authority, the ones that everybody knew had the religious answers. And they, they were being like the older brother and didn't want the sinners to come. And Jesus is saying, we need to all be like the older father. Um, la- last week, I was uh, maybe a similar situation. Not really at all, but it kind of. Um, uh, I was in a class learning how to write uh, my 250-page dissertation and is learning how to do the Turabian style of like how to write a paper and the format. You guys know what I'm talking about? The how a paper has to be styled is the, is the word. And uh, we did this whole class of how a paper needs to be styled. And then uh, we were at a break, and another student asked, so, so are we supposed to do it like this? And I said, no, we need to do it like this. And I was showing him how to do the paper. But the footnotes need to be like this, and they need to be cited like this and that. And then the teacher overheard and came up and said, no, that's not how you do it. You're teaching him the wrong thing. And I got frustrated. I was just like, well, you just taught us this way. You know, the handbook says this. And I was arguing with the professor, and he was saying, no, it needs to be like this. And I was saying, no, it needs to be like this. Here I am arguing with the dude that is going to read my paper, the guy that is going to be, like, on the panel of, of, of board, the board that I'm going to, like, present my dissertation to, and he's either going to pass me or fail me. Here I am arguing with him about what is correct. And it was just really, for, the, for the guy that I was explaining how to do the paper to, he was just like, okay, you know, let, let, let me just show me the right way. But I, since I knew the correct answer in my head, just was almost offended. And I kind of, I didn't really raise my voice, but afterwards I need to, needed to apologize because I kind of embarrassed him in front of the other student. I was kind of going back and forth about and kind of saying, well, this is in the handbook. How do you explain this? I was just kind of rude. And it's hard to humble ourselves, don't you think? It's, it's a hard thing to do that when we think we're right, that someone else comes and explains us and it's really the correct answer. And in the same way, us before God, like the ant and the human, there's no way we can comprehend who God is. There's no way an ant can comprehend a human. There's no way we can comprehend God. So when God tells us how things are, through the use of the Bible, we need to understand that. We need to just humble ourselves and say, yes, God, I need to be more like the father and not like this older son in this story that thinks they know all the answers, that thinks they're walking and being just fine with God when maybe there's things that we need to repent of. And so that's the story. Let me close with this one final parable. It's a parable that summarizes Pharisees and tax collectors. And if you're reading it as as a person that was there in the story, you would know that a Pharisee is, you would think that the Pharisee is the good guy, the guys that are known for prayer, the guys that are known for church. And the tax collector, would you think they were good guys or bad guys? 
Yeah, they were like the worst guys. They were the people that came to your house and, and that either took money or just stuff that was of value to give it to the Roman Empire. So there's good guys, Pharisees, bad guys, tax collectors, and Jesus radically changes all that. It's in Luke 18, verse 9. If you want to turn there, we're going to close with this passage. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He's doing stuff. He's righteous according to his own idea of what righteousness is. Verse 13 says, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you were a God. You were a man on this earth that told stories, that we could comprehend you by your parables. And God, this whole month we, we, we've been studying your parables and we just thank you. We sincerely thank you for the stories that you've given to us. We praise you, Jesus. We honor you with our lives. God, give us more understanding of who you are. Let us respond to your knowledge, Jesus. We love you. We praise you for this day, God. Everybody said, Amen.